Okay, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> so, I'm about to go to this comic book convention, and the, the first, uh, the, the, I'm going to be on this panel, and it's called Heroes and Faith. So the first year that they did it, they, they have people, uh, a representative from different major religions, right? So, so uh, the question was, or the first question they started off with was, what's a hero? And you have to picture the audience, because the audience was about, it was in this side room, and it, it's not really a huge convention, and there were probably about 12 people in the room, right? Like, it was mostly populated by empty chairs, and the room wasn't even that big, okay? But what was so interesting was that they were all, just about all of them were dressed up as either, like, Batman or Superman or, like, Wonder Woman. It was, like, really an interesting kind of thing. So they, they get to me, and, and I, you know... What do I know? Who and what difference does it make anyway? But if you if you if you said to me, were they Jewish? I would say probably no one there was Jewish. So they get to me and they ask me the question, "What's a hero?" And for some reason, this is what kind of just came into my head. So I said, "I said I want to tell you guys uh, uh, a Hasidic story about the Sanzer Rebbe." <laughs> you know, and so. I said that the Sansa Rebbe, you know, like looked out the window one time and he saw one of his Hasidim and he called him over and he said, he said, if you found a bag of money in the middle of the street, what would you do? And the Hasid said, well, you know, it's a mitzvah, you know, to, to return the money. I would, I would try to find out who the owner is and I'd return it to him. And the Rebbe says, fool! Right? And he sends him away. And then he sees another Hasid and he sends him over and he says, he says the same question. If you found that bag of money in the middle of the street, what would you do? And the, and the, and the person says, you know, like with a broken heart, he says, he says, Rebbe, you know, things are very tough for me right now. And if I, if I found that bag of money, if there was no one around, I, I probably would, would keep it for myself. And the Rebbe says, wicked, and sends him away, right? And then he sees another chassid, and he calls him over, and he says, the same question, if you found that bag of money, what would you do? And he says, Rebbe, I'd like to think I'd do the right thing, but I don't know until I'm right there. And he says, that's the right answer. So I said, you know, the definition of a hero is someone who, when they're in that situation, does the right thing. And they broke out in applause. And I was amazed. I'm like, I guess I'm still amazed. I'm still amazed four years later. You know? So, anyway, so I'm always curious what's going to happen at one of these events. So we'll hopefully we'll have a story for next week or something. Let's see. Let's see what happens uh, later on today. So, um, all right. So speaking of speaking of heroes, we have um, Abraham Avinu. We get to study about our holy father, Abraham, our holy mother Sarah. And uh, just this incredible light that they brought to the world, and um, this parsha lech lecha is is always especially meaningful to me for for a number of reasons. I'll just kind of tick through them quickly. Um, one is we we had a uh, well, it's it. I, let me revise that. Let me tick through these not quickly. <laughs> so since we have, we're just at the start, we have a little time together. So anyway, we had a neighbor. Uh, I lived in a large building growing up on 79th Street and Broadway on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And 
there were several hundred families in this building, and there was only one family that was that was uh, that kept Shabbos, uh, and not us, just uh, our, a neighbor that we were friendly with. And um, it was the, the Schatz family, actually, and they actually their son ended up being one of the biggest professors at YU, where he is now, and he's a big expert there. Uh, and um, I think one of his fields of expertise is the Rambam, Maimonides. So anyway, real world-class authority. So anyway, that was that was our neighbor, and and their their mother, uh, Lillian Alavashalom, just a, really just a tzedekas, a saintly woman. She she gave as a, a bar mitzvah present to my older brother, who was five years older. Uh, the Chabad, they weren't Chabad; they were like very young Israel. But they she gave him the Chabad children's magazine called Talks and Tales. Which, at in its day, was like this incredibly um, lo-fi publication. Like you know, like there was like a nature page with like sort of like a black and white, slightly out of focus picture of an owl. You know that. that I mean, it was really we would we would call it today Hamish, right? <laughs> I think that would be the nice way of saying it. it was sincere, you know. But anyway, there was a lot of light packed into it, and um, one of the one of the features of it is every week there was a Hasidic story in it. And I, I, I remember reading these when I was eight, and these Hasidic stories really became the foundation of my whole understanding of, of Torah and, and Judaism and God and everything like that. And I, I, I noticed something at, at some point, which is that every Hasidic story, no matter what the storyline is, they're all different, but, but in their essence, they're all the same. They all have these points. There's a God, He loves you, and He's intimately involved in your life. Every Hasidic story has these elements to it. Um, and, and I remember when I, when I started going, when I was 14, and I started going to Reb Shlomo Karlbach's shul, which was across the street from my house. I could see it out of my window. Uh, what really drew me to Reb Shlomo, what created that bond, was he was telling Hasidic stories. And, and I, you know, I was like, oh, these are that. That's the thing, you know? So that, that's really what, what created that. And I read, you know, just the just the power of Hasidic stories. I'll tell you, I saw just recently that the Kutzker Rebbe, who is, you know, one of the of his generation, just, you know, he was known as fire and um, and uh, one of the greatest minds probably that we've ever had. And um, they asked him. He wasn't he wasn't from a Hasidic family. They asked him, why did you become a, a Hasid? So he said, there was an old man in my shul, and he told Hasidic stories over. And the Kutzker Rebbe said, he spoke and he spoke, and I listened and I listened. Now this is from one of the, the, the person talking there is one of the greatest analytic minds that we've had, like on earth, you know? But it just goes to show you what 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 these stories can can do. They're 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 transformational when you hear them. Um, so so anyway, I remember my mother coming into my my room, and I don't know how old I was at the time, a little older, and she said that the Lubavitcher Rebbe was having this campaign uh, where he was making a safer Torah, and you could buy a letter in the Torah. And he wanted, like, everyone in the world, basically, to buy letters in the Torah. And my mom said that she bought a letter, and she got this certificate back saying that our letter was in Lech Lecha, in this Parsha. So, 
And and by the way, my, my first son was born Parsha's Lechacha. That was his 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 Parsha. And my first sort of like Shabbos test or test, whatever it was, was Parsha's Lechacha. And I remember I went for a walk, appropriately enough, with Reb Shlomo. And, um, you know, we talked about a number of things. I, I, I don't remember what he said. He, a few things I remember, but, but not the essence of it. And I was discussing the fact because I was just sort of getting into, like, doing speech tournaments at the time. And, and they were really, they were, held on, uh, they were held on Shabbos morning. But I wasn't observant at the time. And, uh, but I wanted to go to shul. But it was all kind of a, I was just a confused kid. I didn't really know what to do. So, but anyway, that was that was that was Parshas Lech Lecha. That we that we took that walk together. And how do how do I know that? Because ten years later, when I decided, when I was very close to to keeping Shabbos, and I decided that this is sort of like the path that I wanted to go down. I, I saw Reb Shlomo. He was giving a, a little event down um, in downtown LA on Flower Street, and that was attended by about I don't know, maybe six people. And I remember he was sitting in front of this giant Rebbe Nachman book, right? It was like one of these giant ones, and there was a a, a woman sitting next to him who was was this was a, sort of an ecumenical event definitely not Jewish and Reb Shlomo was just sort of like you know just shuckling just shaking over the over this safer and you know who knows what depths he was plumbing and you know she just turned to him and said what's that right like like the most open-ended question in the entire world like how can you sort of like convey the, the entirety of Torah and, and Hasidus and Rabbi Nachman and like the whole, everything. How can you convey that in, in sort of like one answer, one sentence? And he just turned to her and he smiled and he said, deep stuff. <laughs> and she was happy with that answer and he went back to, the, he went back to his learning. So anyway, I remember after that, that, that learning, after that teaching, I went up to him and I told him that I was sort of like kind of making progress. Like, like I, I, I told him I, I feel like I've got my foot in the door finally, you know. And um, he, he turned to me and he said, now this, this, this is now 10 years later. 10 years later. Now, Reb Shlomo traveled around the world all of the time. And, and it's not an exaggeration to say that the number of interactions with people that he had over that 10 years was probably in the tens of thousands. It's not an exaggeration at all. So he says to me, do you remember that walk that we took? This was 10 years before. I said, yes. And then he says to me, do you remember what Parsha it was? I was like, no. He says, it was Parsha's Lechacha. And then he said to me, do you remember what I told you? Or do you remember what we talked about? I don't remember his exact words. I said, no. And, and then he told me what he said. And you want to hear something crazy? This conversation that I'm relating to that happened between us happened... Uh, happened... Uh, 
30, 31 years ago, 31 years ago. And it just occurred to me this week what, what it was that he had been telling me when I was 14. Right? It says, by the way, it says in the, in the Talmud that, uh, uh, that, that Yehoshua like, understood what Mo- Moshe was saying 40 years later. And, and the Talmud says that it takes you basically 40 years to figure out what your Rebbe is saying. So this is now, I guess, about 41 years later. But this week it, it, it occurred to me, oh, that's what he was telling me. So what was he saying? What did he say? He said, do you know the difference between Noach and Avraham? He said, with Avraham, the tests begin. He said it more at length, and he said it so gently. He said it so gently that I didn't understand until now that what he was t- trying to tell me was that I was being tested. Trying to explain to me that I was being tested. But I didn't, I wasn't in a place where I even begun to understood, understand what he was talking about, really, honestly. So let's just get, get that clear because I just, I just think it's an important um, conceptual framework for us to understand the difference between Noah and Abraham. And what does it mean, tests? What does it mean, tests in general? Okay? So, a lot of people give Noah a very hard time because they say, why didn't you pray for, for the flood not to come? Why, why didn't you stop the flood? You could have stopped the flood. You could have saved the entire world. A lot of people like, like to say that. And it's not really a fair thing to say, honestly. It's not really a fair thing to say. And, and let, me, let me tell you why. So if I were to ask you, because the Torah itself calls Noach a tzaddik. If I were to ask you, what's a, give me a, a working definition, a good working definition for what a tzaddik is, right? I think that this would be a, a good one. A tzaddik is someone who wants to do wholeheartedly the will of God. And, and even more, wants their will to be in line with what God wants. It's not, they don't just want to do God's will. They want to sort of like refine themselves to a place where their own will is in line with what God's will is, right? So, so, so what did God say to Noah? I'm, I'm, I want to bring a flood. So if you were a tzaddik, right? With that understanding of a tzaddik, you would go, okay, that's what it is. That's the plan. Let's bring the flood. Let's do it. Like, what, what else are you supposed to say? You see, so I learned from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar that the idea that you could pray for something other than what God was bringing down, in other words, that you could pray that, that it should be something else, hadn't been revealed into the world yet. And that that was one of the great spiritual evolutions of what happens with Avraham Avinu arriving on the scene. The whole concept that you could see, say, injustice in the world, or, or what you perceive to be injustice, or, or, or poverty in the world, or, or a war, or hardship, or whatever it is, and you could say, God, no, 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 do, do something else. Have mercy. This, this is a new revelation that came into the world with Avraham Avinu. And you see, Avraham Avinu is praying that Sodom, which was, you know, to this day is, is shorthand for, for wickedness, 
that God should, Avraham is praying that Sodom should be spared. So, so the tests begin with Avraham because on a very deep level, what's a test? A test means that you're not just rubber stamping everything that you see around you. See, then that's already, that leaves room now for, for more of a personal involvement and more, more of what we'll call a test. Okay. So, so let's, get into, let's get into this idea of, of Lech Lecha, okay? Because the greatness of Avraham Avinu is that the oneness of God had been forgotten in the entire world, right? It, it had been known in the earlier generations, and it was forgotten. It was completely buried over by idol worship. This is what was that? Abraham and Noah? Abraham, Abraham. So, so, so the, the greatness of Abraham is that he restored the knowledge of the oneness of God to the world. It had been known in the early generations, Adam, on and on, but it had been buried over in idol worship. Okay? And now it was completely forgotten. And Abraham intuitively arrives at the idea that there's one God. And the Medrash says that who were his teachers? His two teachers, are you ready for this? Were his two kidneys. His two kidneys. What does that mean? You know, in, in Yiddish we have a phrase, your kishkas. And some people say, you know what, I just I know in my kishkas that it's right, or I know in my kishkas that it's wrong. That means that you have an intuitive sense about what what, what the thing is, right? That's so Avraham intuitively understood that there's a God in the world. Now let's look at how the Medrash explains this, because this is now Medrash Rabbah, this is the first Medrash, and they give a beautiful visual, very interesting visual, and a key word we're going to dive into is this word deleket, and we're going to give three different explanations of this word deleket, okay? But let's set up the visual first. So it says, Rav Yitzhak says that, that, that Abraham arriving at, at, at the oneness of God is analogous to someone who's going from place to place, and he sees like this 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 house, this palace, and this palace is delicate. Okay, so we have to explain what does that mean the, that the palace is delicate. Okay, so so the 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 first the first thing that we have to understand is is that. Is what does it mean that this person was traveling and he, he sees a palace? All right. So in modern in in in, in modern uh, parlance, we would call this the the designer theory. Okay. What what's the designer theory? That's the idea that if you were say in a desert, and you saw like a a a watch, a pocket watch, you know, like a just one of these complicated, you know you know, mechanical devices, right? Just sitting there on the sand, you wouldn't say, well, the, the, the wind blew the sand and the sand sort of like formed into this incredibly elaborate mechanical device. You, you, you just would not reach that conclusion. You would say, this thing has a designer, has a creator, right? So that's the, that's the idea that this world, by the way, when we're talking about the, when we're talking about the world, the, the very first letter of the Torah is the letter Bez of Breshis. Bez is also like the word Bayit. So they say like, this whole world is like a house, right? 
So what does it mean that, so, so to speak, Abraham is traveling around and he sees this house. In other words, he sees the elaborate construction of this incredibly complicated world, right? And says, there has to be a creator. Has to be a creator. That, that's, that's the parallel. But, but the Medrash is already talking about this designer theory, you know, a couple of thousand years ago. But we haven't gotten to the keyword yet. We haven't gotten to the word delicate. Okay? So it says that he didn't just see this house there, but that the first um, translation is for delicate. This is, is you see, delicate has the same root as the word, like when you light candles, lahadlik, ner, Shabbos, right? which means that the house was lit, meaning the lights were on. So, so now that's a very interesting detail. You know, I was thinking, sharing with the Hebrew yesterday, that, that I learned in science class one time that like these dwarf stars, that if you take a teaspoon of a dwarf star, it weighs billions of pounds. All right, that's how dense it is. This imagery from the sages is like so incredibly dense. Every single word is like has like phenomenal meaning, and especially if they're going out of their way to construct a visual for you, and they're adding a detail, that detail is very, very important. So do you see how it would have been enough, like if you want to just reference the, the pocket watch in the desert, so just say that there's a house in the middle of nowhere. You understand? Like... How did that house get there? There, mu there must be a, a builder to the house. But the Medrash goes one step further. It says there was a house and it was delicate. The lights were on. What is that adding? What is that detail adding? You see, you, do, do you understand how you don't need that detail of the lights being on in order to ask your, in order to say there must be someone who built this house? And this is a very essential point. So according to the Yafis Tohar, who's a, a, a commentator on the, on the, on the Medrash Rabbah, he lived in the 1500s in, in Constantinople. So it says, he explains that what it means is, is that there's not just a creator of the world, but the lights are on, meaning that the creator, God, Hashem, is still involved with the world. See, this is a very big thing because, you see, the word belief, if I say, do you believe? Do you believe? Everything? Oh, I believe. Well, what do you believe? Oh, okay. Well, that's all another question, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, we're so funny. We think, oh, you're, you're, are you a believer? I'm a believer. Really? I'm a believer too. What do you believe? Oh, well, you don't believe what I believe. <laughs> I don't believe what you believe. You know? It's kind of funny. It's kind of funny how completely insufficient, insufficient that word is. So you say, okay, well, maybe let's refine it a little bit further. Do you believe in God? Yeah, I also believe in God. We both believe in God. Well, what do you actually mean when you say you believe in God? <laughs> I believe there's this giant power who's ready to zap me the first time I do something wrong and who's like making my life incredibly difficult for me. Really? Oh, I don't believe that, actually. I believe something a little bit different than that. But we won't believe in God. In other words, in other words, 
there are a lot of people who believe that there is a des- there is a creator. Because anyone who's, I think, well, this is maybe an unfair statement, but I think that anyone who's like really delves into the just the magnificence and the, the miraculousness and the complexity of of creation, it's so far out. It's so far out that it's really, I think, I think, hard to say that it just kind of happened, right? It, I believe that, that, that's 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 my take on it. I think it's almost irrational to say that it all came together, you know? Okay, that's me. But a lot of people believe, you know, you're right. There is a creator, but after he created the world, he abandoned it. A lot of people believe that. A lot of people believe that. And you know what? You'll probably never get to that. You'll probably never get to that thought with them because the conversation will never go deeper than, oh, you believe in God? I believe in God. But you see, what I'm trying to tell you is that believing in God, if you want to believe in God as a Jew believes in God, what the Torah is saying belief in God is, it's not just believing that there's a creator who exists. You also have to believe that the lights are on inside the house. Do do you understand? That's That's a very different type of belief. This is the Jewish belief that God is involved in our lives. This is huge. So that's the first definition of Deleket, okay? Now the Chidush Rim is going to give us the second definition, okay? The second definition is really also far out, because it's not just, remember, Lahadlik, like Lahadlik, now you're lighting a fire, right? So the first one was the lights are on in the house. You ready for the second one? The house is on fire. <laughs> All right, now this is like really challenging, because wait a second, Again, let's go back to the pocket watch in the desert. If you want to say that there's something incredibly complex, remember, this world is compared to a house, right? That's the base of Rashid. Base is by it. This whole world is a palace. And you want to say that, therefore, where did this palace come from? There must have been an architect. There must have been a builder, right? Okay, great. Why do you have to say that the house is on fire? <laughs> That's a whole very major extra piece of information. But that, it's not just that, it's that Abraham, Abraham sees this house and it's on fire. What is that telling us? So I remember I, I was having dinner with a, a, a rabbi who's written a number of books and speaks all over the world and everything like that. And I said to him years ago, I said, why is the, why does it say the house is on fire? And I don't remember what he told me, but I, I just remember thinking, mm. <laughs> I just remember really not being satisfied with any anything he, he said. And listen, you know, that was just me. Nothing nothing wrong with him. But I just saw this past week from the Chidush Rim an, an explanation that I loved, which was, what does it mean the house is on fire? So he says, you know what? You know what it means the house is on fire? It means that this world isn't the main point. That this world is temporary. That Olamaba, the next world is the main point. See? Now that's that's a whole nother way of looking at your life. That's a whole nother way of understanding God. That's a whole nother way of looking at the history of the world. 
everything changes with that, with that, with that perspective. Because you say, oh, wait a second. This world isn't the main point. And by the way, we love this world. Jews love this world. We love this world. There are religions that say, this world is horrible and you just got to get through it and it's terrible. And you wanna, I'll tell you something freaky. You want to hear something freaky? This is freaky. In, in um, I don't know if it's Catholicism or Christianity, this is true what I'm about to tell you. You can check it. This is history. It is against Christian canon, canon to commit suicide. Okay? So there were many people who did this. I don't know how widespread it was, but it was, it was, it was known. It's a, it was a documented practice. What people would do who would want to commit suicide, since it was absolutely forbidden, you ready for this? It's like really crazy. They would kill a child. And killing a child, the penalty for that crime was the death penalty. And the idea was that this child was without sin and without blame, and therefore the child would go up to heaven. And since this world was considered a horrible place, they were actually doing this child a favor by freeing it from all the horrors of this world, giving it an early ticket to paradise, and then they got what they wanted because then the court would kill them. And so it was this roundabout, very tragic form of being able to achieve suicide, but it involved the murder of a child. Right? We say this world is good. Right? Okay, we have other issues. <laughs> but, but, but in terms of is this world good, we say this world is absolutely good. It's good. It's great. However, what else do we say? It's not the point, though. See, remember, the soul is eternal. And after the body, after 120, the soul leaves the body and lives on forever. So we're in it forever. We're not going anywhere. Okay? And, and remember, Rabbi Ari Kaplan says something so beautiful. You're, see, a lot of people think, okay, yeah, I'm spiritual. And again, we're getting into the idea of the, 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 the vagaries of belief. Do you believe in an afterlife? Oh, I believe in it. I, yes, I do. So, so what happens? Well, the soul ascends into the oneness of God and kind of just disappears into the oneness of God. We don't say that. We do not say that. We say that the person remains the person with all the memories of their life after this world. In other words, you don't stop being you forever. It's an amazing Amazing idea, you know, and I, I heard um, from Rebetzin Tzipora Heller. She said that how do you recognize a person in the next world, right? Because they don't have a body. So they have all of their mitzvahs printed on them. <laughs> so in other words, you would, I, would, I would see like this sort of shining soul and it would say, I changed the diapers of David Sachs. And I'd be like, Mom! <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so we we remain us. Now, now, just think, just think, just kind of like 
mathematically for a, a brief moment. If you have something which is finite next to something that's infinite, right? No matter how large the finite thing is, right? it could be huge. If it's next to something infinite, that finite thing, no matter how large it is, is tiny. Do, do you understand? Because it doesn't matter how big it is. If it's next to something infinite, it's tiny, relatively speaking. So if the soul is infinite and lives on, you know, hopefully we all live long, fantastic lives. But compared to the 120 years, do you know what eternity is? So in other words, this, this life, even in its goodness and its richness and its fullness, is, is, is that. It's, it's that. It's that. That's what it means the house is on fire. That's what it means the house is on fire. It's what it means that this world is ultimately temporary. And not only ultimately temporary, but ultimately not the point. Okay, that's definition number two for Delecus. Now we're ready for definition number three. A completely different understanding, by the way. So, again, this is coming from the Chedush And he says that, that, uh, that the word means to pursue. Okay? And he points to, it's uh, verse 31, or chapter 31, verse 36. The word is delakta, right? And it means to chase after. And it's referring to when Lovin was chasing after Yaakov. It uses this word delakta. Do you, see, do you hear how delakta and deleket are the same word? So listen, I'll read you the English translation of that verse. Then Jacob became angered and he took up his grievance with Lovin. Jacob spoke up and said to Lovin, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have? You ready for the translation for the, from the art scroll? That you have hotly pursued me. Okay, so delicate is to not just to pursue a hot pursuit, right? That's like a really fevered chase. So the Chedusha Rimoff that says, you know what it means that the house is delicate? And remember, the house again stands for the world, right? Do you know what it means that it's that it's that it's in pursuit? that the world itself is in pursuit toward its own perfection. That it's the destiny of the world that it's going to reach a state of perfection. This is what we call the messianic era. And that all of the events of the world and all of the events of our life are coming and taking us closer, are hotly pursuing, if you will, the revelation of the oneness of God. So, again, let's get back to this idea of belief and Jewish belief. So do you, do you, do you hear what, what the Medrash is teaching us in terms of what Avraham's recognition of God was? Was not just that there's a creator, that there's a creator who's involved in this world and involved in our lives. That there's a creator who... Who, who's telling us that this world is only part of the picture and isn't even the main part of the picture. 
And that three, that the world around us is evolving toward a state of perfection. And that all of the events of our lives, even if they're painful, even if they're painful, are chasing toward the completion and open revelation of God's oneness in this world. And these are all elements that if a person wants to believe in God in a Jewish way, like Avraham Avinu, these are all things that we have to believe. And I'll tell you something, if you look at the world this way, you lead a different life. You'll lead a different life. You're, you're, you'll be a different person. Because you'll see it through a framework. I was talking with someone yesterday. I said, you know, she said to me, she, I guess, has just started listening to some of the talks or whatever it is. She said to me, do you, do you know how um, optimistic you are? Are you aware of that? And I, I was like, well, I, I, I guess I'm not because I don't really necessarily consider myself optimistic. I'm just trying to tell you what the Torah is saying. Right? So, if you, like, bite something and it's delicious, like, and you say, it's delicious, <laughs> are you a food critic? <laughs> I'm just telling you what it is. <laughs> It's telling you what the Torah is saying. There's a happy ending. There's a happy ending to all of our lives. Hopefully we have happy lives, but even if they're difficult, God forbid, everyone has a share in the next world. There's a happy ending to the history of the world because at the end, ultimately, one way or another, Mashiach comes. So there's a happy ending to our lives. There's a happy ending to the world. That, 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 that's... that's what it is. That's what it is. So if we can see our own lives, if we can see the world through that lens, we're the beneficiaries of it. And it's not a question of being optimistic. It's a question of just sort of being in sync with what the reality actually is. You know, I heard Rabbi Cardozo say something very interesting. He was talking about how, um, you know... Karl Marx and, and communism in general were like very anti-religion. They, they called religion the, the opiate of the masses, meaning that religion was something that just sort of like basically just, uh, it was like self-medicating, right? It was like, you know, it was, it was a way to kind of, you know, anesthetize yourself, how do you say it? <laughs> yeah, like anesthesia, anesthesia. Like it was a way to sort of like, you know, put that mask, you know, over your nose and mouth so that you can just sort of like ignore the problems of the world or be at peace at the, all the problems and everything like that. And so a very, very disrespectful, very, very disrespectful understanding of, of religion. He said, and he said something that I thought was so simple but so, so strong. He said, he said, if it's true, and we say it's true actually, shouldn't it also feel good? <laughs> like, 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 they seem to be attacking it because it feels good. But if it's true, shouldn't it also feel good? Like, why, why does that suggest this sort of like intolerable contradiction? You know, my, my, my dad used to 
tell a story. Uh, this is something, this is sort of like uh, old-fashioned these days now. But it used to be if you cut your finger, you would put a little iodine on it, okay? So, and iodine stung. So you put a little drop on it and go, Ugh! like it would hurt. So listen to this. My dad used to love this story. Someone came up with a form of iodine that didn't hurt. And you know what? No one bought it because they, they didn't think it worked. They thought that it had to hurt to work. You know, I remember my wife telling me that there's certain people that, like, like in their love uh, relationships, right, dating, maybe also marriage too, but let's talk about dating right now. It has to be a roller coaster, right? It has to be ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. And the person thinks that if you don't have all those ups and downs and ups and downs, that there's no real connection or romance or anything really, no passion really going on. But why? Why? Why does it have to hurt? Why does it have to hurt? Why not smooth? Why not, why not that? That's, a, that's an option too. But a person has to choose that option and realize that that option exists, by the way. So, we're not victims. We're not victims. We're, we're, we're very much engaged in, in this world. And, and I want to just take a moment to talk about Sarah also, because we've been talking about Avraham. So let's talk about Sarah a little bit, okay? So, so Sarah is originally Sarai, right? Shin Reish Yud. And, and, um, and then she becomes Sarah. The Yud gets turned into a He. And now, now she's Sarah, okay? When she's Sarai, she can't have children. When she's Sarah, she does have children. By the way, I, I, I had this thought, and then I, I was so happy I saw it from the Magalia Mukos. He wrote it too. He wrote it too, 500 years before me. <laughs> so, um, so Sarai, with a Yud, when she has the Yud in her name, you know, Yud is like from the Yud Ke Vavke, like it's the highest letter. It's like that she was like basically like an angel. So how, how can she have kids if she's an angel, right? She's like not an earthly being. But if you, you know, we always, when we're looking at the name of Hashem, I always say, Think of it from top to bottom, because it's also a, a map of the world. The bottom hay stands for this world. So that, that top yud, that total angelic quality, gets turned into a hay. And now she's like basically in this dimension a little bit more. And when she's Sarah, now she's having children. Okay? But you see, we have this concept of mazel. What's, what's mazel? It's a very, very big topic, but it's maybe just zero in. See, Mazel is, you see, when Hashem is talking to Avraham, he says, he says, I'm lifting you above the stars because Avraham was a great astrologer among his other brilliant 
base of knowledge. He was also a great astrologer, and he saw in the stars that he, Avram, right, before he becomes Avraham, and his wife, Sarai, before she becomes Sarah, he sees in the stars that Avram and Sarai can have children. So it says that Hashem lifted him above the stars and, and, and asked him to, to view creation from that standpoint. Meaning to say that the Jewish people, Israel, Yisrael, and we're going to get to that word in a moment, that Yisrael is above Mazel, meaning we're above the dictates of nature. Okay? Now listen to this. I was, I was staring at the word Israel, Yisrael, one time, just trying to think, like, what is Israel, Israel, Israel? So Israel means above Mazel, right? And I realized that Israel, if you rearrange the letters of Israel, it spells the words lo, meaning not, lo sarai. Why lo sarai? Because sarai was subject to Mazel. <laughs> but Israel is lo sarai. Israel is above Mazel. Right? So Israel, we are lo sarai. We are not subject to the dictates. We're not victims of nature. We're not victims of the cards that are dealt to us. We can transcend that through mitzvot. Because basically, mitzvot are those things that give you wings. Mitzvot, remember mitzvah, uh, one of the definitions of mitzvah is, is a connection. Right? Or as Rip Shlomo put it one time, they're divine pathways that you walk down. And they're, they're the, this, this incredible energy, tie, ladder, rope, however you want to think of it, that lift us beyond the dictates of this world and allow us to transcend different elements of this world and different elements that would normally be part of our fate. You see, because mazel on a deeper level really means tikkun, really means fixing. Because there are a lot of things, cards that a person is dealt. Intelligence, wealth, where in the world that they live, tall or short, man or woman, right? All these things actually are dealt to a person. You can't say that these things weren't dealt to me. They are dealt to us. But does that, does that, does that mean that we're back to the definition of mazel meaning luck? Oh, you got that hand. I got this hand. So are we back to this idea of luck? No. This is what I'm telling you. This is the deeper idea that mazel means tikkun. What it means is, is that, you see, remember, we believe in reincarnation. Okay? And as Reb Shlomo said it, this world is one big hospital clinic. Every single person in this world is here to fix someone, something. Every person in this world is here to fix some aspect of their soul. And so what God does is he tailors the circumstances of your life, right? It says, you know, I, I never saw it in writing, but I've heard it from a few different places that a child actually picks their parents. It's kind of a freaky thing because how many people don't get along with their parents? It seems to be like 
a lot of people, you know? And so how could I, you mean I, that was a lousy choice I made, or, or, or was it? Maybe that's part of my tikkun. Maybe I needed that set of circumstances in order to bring me to whatever it is that I have to fix during my lifetime in this world. In other words, God, okay, but I wanted to be rich. Yeah, but you know what? Poor is going to help you to fix what you need to fix in this world. I would have rather, they say, ignorance is bliss. You don't see that in the Torah, but people say that. Why couldn't I be a blissful idiot? Why did I have to know so much? You know, by the way, by the way, Shlomo Melech, this is heartbreaking, actually. This is heartbreaking. It's either in Kahelis or in, in um, Mishle. But he says, you ready for this? The more knowledge, the more pain. You hear that? King, King Solomon. King Solomon. The more knowledge, the more pain. That's, that's heavy. That's heavy. It's heavy. You know? Did you ever hear something like, like some gossip and you were like, oh, I wish I didn't know that thing. I wish I did not know that thing about that person. Right? So, or, or just through your own, as, as a person refines themselves, just by talking to another person, they, they kind of know what's going on with that person. You know? I mean, do they know all the details? I'm not saying they know all the details, but they give a sense of, of the pain that the person is going through. The more knowledge, the more pain. But, 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 again, God tailors the circumstances of our life so that we can use those situations that we're in in order to do whatever fixing that we need to fix. And then, when we do that fixing, we're no longer subject to those forces. Do you understand? This is the idea of Israel is lo sarai. Because through our own internal work, right, we're able to rise above the circumstances of our life. It's an amazing gift that God gives us. It's an amazing, amazing gift. Amazing gift. But again, it's it's through the mitzvot because the whole world is made out of the Torah. So if you want to kind of climb the fabric of reality, it's through the mitzvot. It's through the mitzvot. So we can just start to wrap it up a little bit. Um, I just want to share with you another I, level of, of lech, lech Lecha. So Lech Lecha is a really interesting phrase, right? Um, because Lech, right, means to go, like Holech, right? Um, I heard something beautiful one time from Rabbi Seidenfeld. He said that Halacha Halacha, which is translated as Jewish law, which is not a great translation, it really means the how one walks, like or the way. It, it actually has kind of like an Eastern vibe to it. That halacha is kind of like just the the way, the flow, you know. But it has the word walk in it, and he says because a person when they're starting to, you know, grapple with halacha and take it seriously, walk don't run. Like find someone where you can 
walk with it in, 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 and that way you're integrating it within yourself in a real way, okay? So maybe someone's not happy with your progress, right? But at the same time, if a person is making real strides, they're establishing a very real foundation and that's what's going to last. So, so lech means walk, so that means to go forward. But you, something so interesting, lecha means, it's a reflexive word, into yourself. So you have this twin dynamic. You're walking forward, but what you're doing is you're taking your experience that you're having and then you internalize it and you make it real. Okay? But then the progress repeats itself. Then you go back to lech and then you internalize it again and it's lecha again. You see, Rebbe Eager said something. These, these words saved my life. This teaching saved my life. He says that the command to Avraham Avinu Lech Lecha and to Sarah was not just in their day. That it was to every Jew for all time. Don't stop moving. Don't stop moving. You know, you find yourself sitting down and just starting to sink into a sink into the couch, sink into the chair. Just say, don't just don't stop moving. Just tell yourself, don't stop moving. And just stand up and go. Where? Doesn't matter. Just whatever the next thing is. Just stand up, take a step, and just keep on going. Right? So, so again, you don't stop. The lechlecha doesn't stop moving. Because the command is, is on us forever. So you take a step, then you internalize it, then you put more light into the world. That's the lecha, right? Because after you internalize it, you have to take a step forward. That means that you take that light that's in you and you put it out in the world. And then you have another experience and then you lecha that, right? You internalize something greater. And then all of us are going through this lech lecha experience, walking through history together and we're putting more and more and more light in the world. And then we get back to the third definition of delicate which is the idea that the world itself is pursuing, hotly pursuing, its completion. Right? Because all the cumulative light of the world is all pouring out in the world, and it's all revealing the oneness of God. So I just say as a final thing, you know, Lech Lecha is Gematria 100. And on Rosh Hashanah, we had 100 shofar blasts. Now listen to what the Kutzka Rebbe says, something phenomenal. He says that when God said Lech Lecha, he said it to the whole world, but Avraham was the only one who listened. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, so you know, Lech Lecha is a hundred. We all had our hundred chauffeur blasts, we all heard. <laughs> and so now we have to make that first step. You have to make that first step. What is it? What, what, what's that first step? Or that, or that commitment, right? To, to keep on going. To keep on going and to not stop. And, and I'll just, just tell you this last thing because this is a, another life-saving teaching. Avram goes to Canaan. I heard from Rabbi Orlovsky this, this thought. And he, he, he's confronted with all sorts of terrible stuff. His wife gets kidnapped. There's a famine in the land. You would have thought that if Avraham gets to 
He listens to God. It's a test. He, he passes the test. In fact, I heard something unbelievable. You ready for this? That when God said, Lech Lecha, meaning go move, right? That Avram started moving before God finished saying, Lech Lecha. <laughs> Don't you love Avraham? I mean, how can you not love Avraham? He was already moving before God finished saying the words. It's awesome. It's awesome. So, so you say, well, wait a second. Then, then he's doing the will of God. He's, he's doing it on the most phenomenal level imaginable. And he's, that God hits him with a famine? The kidnapping of his wife? So the average person would go, well, I can't reconcile those two things. Therefore, Abraham must have done something wrong. Therefore, this came down. Except, no one says Abraham did anything wrong. Which means what? Which means this is a world of challenge. That's what that means. This is a world of challenge. Everything that goes wrong in your life, it's not because you're a bad person or because, oh, you have this of error or that of error or whatever it is. You can have zero of errors. You can be absolutely perfect. You can be on the level of Avraham. It doesn't mean you're going to get through. So if a person understands that they're going to be confronted with challenges every single day, or often, then it's sort of like, think about baseball for a moment, right? It's sort of like if you wake up and you say, I'm walking into the batter's box, and the pitcher is going to throw baseballs at me. Well, I've got my bat, I'm ready, I'm expecting it, and I'm ready to go. Right? The pitcher's not throwing them at me. He's just, that's what it is. I'm picking up the bat, I'm ready to go. So if we have that attitude as we start the day, that it's sort of like, okay, I'm picking up my bat, what's, what's today going to send me? Then it's not like, oh, I have to do this, and oh, that. No, it's sort of like, Okay, I have to do this and that. You know what I mean? It's a completely different perspective. And um, I, I heard this. I guess this is kind of well known, but I just think it's so good. Apparently, this is a true fact, that the Golden Gate Bridge, right? That they, they, it, it rusts really quickly. And they're painting it. So they, every time they finish painting it, when they get to the end of painting it, they have to start painting it the other way. That's how, that's how quickly it rusts. They're never not painting the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> Amazing thing. It's not like they, they finish and it's like, they get a phone call. What do you mean it's rusty again? <laughs> what? No, no, no. There's just this attitude. They understand that they're constantly painting. And it's like if we have that attitude and we say, okay, this is what it is. The challenges are going to come every day. I'm waking up. I'm understanding that. I'm preparing. I'm anticipating them. And I'm ready when they come. Again, it's, it's a different life. It's a different world. Now for some questions and answers. Yeah. For me. When you were talking about how there are other religions and other belief systems where like this world means nothing and the next world is what's most important and our belief is that like 
this world is still so important and we have to like, that's always been so hard for me to understand, but it just clicked into place for me that, because I manage both step programs separately and one of the things that they always say is you can't do the steps out of order. And so, is what you're saying, like, this is a huge important step and we don't have to know necessarily why we're not right away, like, in God's hand, you know, like, afterwards, but like, whether or not we fully understand why like this mortal world is like where we are now, like we still have to like do what we're told and trust that like there's a reason why it's in this order. Yeah, for sure. I mean there's so much there's so much uh, Torah on these questions. You know, like why why did God make the world? Like for instance, there's a ton of Torah on answers to that question and things like that and and yeah, I mean, the the, the 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 thing that I always circle back to, it's sort of like my, my theme song, is is this idea that, and I think it's a, you, you didn't sort of phrase it in this way, but I think that this, what I'm about to say, overlaps with what you're saying, is that if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? You know, and why do I have to be, why was I plunged into it, you know, as part and parcel of that, right? And the, the thing is, is that the, the world is like this because it's not finished yet. That's, that's the answer. And, and I always like to give the example of, a, you know, like someone walking into a kitchen and there's like a glass bowl with brownie mix and a raw egg on top and you dip your fingers in the raw egg and the mix and you taste it and you go, these brownies are terrible. <laughs> and, the, and the person says, it, it's not done yet. It's not finished yet. That, that's this world. That's this world. And the pain of it, but the glory of it also, is that God made us partners with him to finish creation. That, that, that's what it is. So, so there's very much a purpose to our lives. There's very much a purpose to this world. All of the challenges that we face are all part of the completion of this world and the finishing of the building of this world, you know? If you, if you look, like I'm a big fan when I walk through the neighborhood of watching um, houses go up and things like that, you know? If you look how much work and how much time it takes to build one house or one little 10-unit, like, apartment kind of thing. But can you imagine how epic building the entire universe is, right? How large this project is, it's beyond epic. And that's what we're involved in right now, all of us. That's what we're doing. But, but there's a point to it. And again, sometimes it's hard, but, 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 but that's part and parcel with, with the largeness of the task. I don't know if that answered your question, but hopefully it was in the neighborhood. <laughs>